everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Sure, this week's guest has seen some shit and done some shit, but his legacy is slowly transforming. Andy Stumpf is more than just a pretty face slash former Navy SEAL. His insatiable curiosity about people and the complexities of their environments is what makes him not only a gifted podcast host of Cleared Hot, but a man who's amassed a wealth of knowledge just by asking the difficult questions. Like a humble Yoda with a borderline irrational hatred for Steven Seagal, Andy speaks on the current times and what it means for our country's future. Here it is, episode 365. It's that time again to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme. I'm Luke. Tex. Special guest, John, John Wellbornay, <laughs> as the guys on Mind Pump Radio have labeled me, which I appreciate the trolling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ding. Ding. You know, we ha- Callie, you have to crop John saying something that ends with ing. And then we'll we'll drop that sucker in there somehow, like a soundboard, you know, like on the radio shows where they hit like the boing boing laugh track. We need that of John saying "ing." Well, we do just need a laugh track in general. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm open to that. <laughs> well, is That's it? Uh, we should just record Callie laughing at all this. That's what. And I'm then she at. just drops it in, like so. There's just somebody cackling in the back of the entire thing. <laughs> well, we know she's <laughs> laughing when she edits, so she uh, should just have a recording going, so it's like a genuine. I just imagine her just la- like shaking her head with her eyes closed for three hours and people being like, you okay? And she's like, these guys are idiots. I can't believe Yeah, just sipping it. on like a 16 ounces of gin, neat, smoking cigarettes. <laughs> who's, she, uh, who's she, Marge's sister? Remember the two sisters <laughs> okay. in The Simpsons? Patty or, and Selma. Yeah, the, Patty. like yeah. over there just throwing butts. <laughs> mm, you know, I haven't watched The Simpsons in like a decade. Do you think they still are smoking? Uh or is that like a faux pas? And I, they've quit. I, I'm just amazed that they keep coming up with new content. Like it, uh, it but yeah. are they? I don't know anyone that still watches The Simpsons. So what they could be doing is just remaking. When is The Simpsons on? Sundays. X. Don't tell people this is exactly what we're doing with the podcast. <laughs> oh well, yeah, we're recutting Andy Stump's talk from Symposium well, 2016 today. <laughs> and Andy's a dynamic speaker, man. Uh, I think I was like the second or third person on his podcast uh, when he did, and we, we recorded it at the symposium. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. still get uh, direct messages and messages from people saying they like that's one of their favorite episodes. So I always thought, man, that's that's pretty good. Um, you know, you can get that type of stuff, and then you get you know one star reviews being like, God, that guy just won't shut up. I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's great, ladies and gentlemen. Speaking of reviews, <laughs> we are on the hunt. For fresh new reviews on Power Athlete Radio. Oh, oh. So head, listen, I know a lot of you guys have been out there listening for years. Some of you dinguses have actually started listening to this podcast, let's say in the last six, seven months, and you've gone back to listen to the old ones. Idiots. Why would you do that? The good stuff is now. Well, I guess there's some good ones back there, aren't there, Tex? Oh, plenty. Yeah, maybe like, one don't, or two. Don't sell us short. Luke. Uh, don't, We're terrible. You're a terrific slouch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, don't tell yourself, like, oh, you're a tremendous slouch. Um, but ladies Caddy and gentlemen, shack. hey, pay it back, baby. We put this out for you. We change your perspective on stuff. We bring you B 
behind the scenes access and unfiltered content to some of the sharpest thinkers out there, leave us a review. Let us know. And you may have your shot at text. Do we have a review to read right now? Not that one. The other one. <laughs> Let me check. Keep stalling. And you, you may have your chance to get your five minutes of fame on Power Athlete Radio. Getting your review Just, read live. We may be picking these reviews randomly, but I'll tell you what. We will be reading the most thoughtful reviews. If you leave one sentence, it's probably not going to get read. If you leave a few sentences that are well thought out, we will reward you. We will reward you by reading your review online. And then we'll read someone else's five-star review, right? And we're just going to compare the quality of listeners because that's where we differ. It's not necessarily in content. It's not necessarily in guest. It's in the quality of our people. And our people care. Yeah, man, you're stalling wonderful. No meat radio. We're going to read some of these reviews. This is an engaging one. And okay. I me, think... Okay, do you want me to read it? Yes. I, I can't move my computer. This is the motherboard today. Okay. Long-time listener, first time, dot, 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 five stars. What can you say about Power Athlete Radio that can't be said eloquently by Luke, Tex, and John? This could be the best podcast with the biggest, most influential guests that doesn't have Joe Rogan attached to it. And I think John would slay Joe Rogan uh, head-to-head. Not sure that pot-smoking California liberal comic would know what to do. Thank mm. you. Ingo, be gone. Suicide. Ingo, be gone. All right, so I'm going to read one. I have no idea where this is going. This is truly random. And this is from a suggested show. On If you're on Power Athlete Radio and it says, hey, you might also like, this is called the No Meat Athlete, which is a vegan and vegetarian nutrition running and training tip podcast for healthy lifestyles. Now, I'm going to give these guys a five-star read. I just started listening about a week ago and already love this podcast. There are so many great episode topics. The style of the show is conversational. It makes you feel like sitting around chatting the host and being lectured. They keep me laughing and entertained about every podcast. I've just been a vegetarian for about six months now, and I'm excited to keep listening. What type of listener is that? Do you see vegetarians commenting on our podcast? No. I've got one more for John to read. Oh. Okay. Luke, you're going to enjoy this. Bring it. Rambling with no show notes. That's another one on here. That's not the one we're reading. <laughs> uh, it's titled ING, 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 four, five stars, Willie B. Phonetically, though, can you give us the phonetic on that? ING. No, no. Uh, Willie so B, it's, it's spelled- 19, uh, 1988. <laughs> Listener number nine and Jack Street resident here. Hey, John, did you happen to play in the NFL for 10 years? As a father of twin girls, I... Dot, dot, dot. Just kidding. I joke because I love. I chomp at the bit each week at the newest episode, and I'm working my way through all of the classics. You guys are awesome. Keep it coming. That is Thanks, fantastic. Willie. Man, what was the title again? Ing, ing, ing. I thought I would get him. I knew it. I knew it. He felt he didn't fall for it, McQuilkin. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, thanks for our interlude there. But do leave us some feedback. Let us know. Give us a rating. And maybe... Maybe we'll give you your five minutes fame on Power Athlete Radio. Now, uh, enough about us. Gentlemen, should we get on to the show? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Andy Stumpf, 
the tactical asshole official <laughs> is here today. He spends two hours lambasting Steven Seagal. Maybe it's warranted. Maybe it's not. Understand the origins. Does Andy even like Steven Seagal movies? I know I do. <laughs> I do, though. Tex, go watch Under Siege yeah, 2. Yeah, we got it. Casey Ryback. You're telling me Casey Ryback is not a legitimate Casey fucking Ryback? Yes. Chief Ryback <laughs> is on that ship? Uh, it's one of the best lines ever. Like, there's something. Mm -hmm. Chief Ryback? It's good. It'd be great to have him on this one. He's already on the ship. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I will I would tell fucking you, John. Ryback. On, so, of Under Siege 1, right? That's the one on the boat. Two is on the train. One's on the boat. Yeah, one's dark territory. Or two is dark if territory. You go back, if you go back and rewatch Under Siege... What was a lead role by Steven Seagal on the rewatch is overshadowed by Tommy Lee Jones. 100%. He's so awesome in that movie. Yeah. So awesome. And uh, I also really like Gary Busey in that one. I think I, yeah, I, I yeah. think it goes Tommy Lee Jones, Gary Busey, then Seagal in the whole deal. Uh, I, do, I do have a good story on that note. So I, do, I follow an Instagram. It's like totally 80s or something like that. And they had a shout out from the saxophone player from the Lost Boys. And he's like, you know how I got this role? I was reading for Gary Busey's line in Under Siege. And I was standing in line waiting. And he actually played saxophone for Tina Turner's band. So he's oh, like okay. in the music videos. Is that guy uh, Tim Capella? Tim Capella is his name. So then he's standing in line on the studio lot outside just waiting for his opportunity to read for Busey's part. And this guy walks up, didn't know him. And he's like aren't you in Tina Turner's band? He's like, yes, I am. And he's like, do you want to sing a song in an upcoming movie? So he's like, do I stay here and read for this part? Do I just take this chance of this random person walking up to me on lot? And he took the lot call, the call guy. So he goes up to the head of Sony or whoever made the Lost Boys, and he's meeting the, the head of this movie studio. And above that guy's desk is this photo of him playing in Tina Turner's band. So this guy was such a Tina Turner fan. No way. That he got this role just unquestioned. So he didn't write the song, but they knew just they needed a saxophone fucking lead for that Lost Boys part. Yeah. And Tim Capella steps in, and now we know his name. Yeah, no, I dude, I, uh, I still believe it's one of my favorites. As you guys oh, know, I, I'm a huge Lost Boys fan. It's actually a breakup song, believe it or not. But mm. Mm. For who? <laughs> or did you listen to that during your breakups? Uh, no, I actually read the lyrics and just just got that feeling, you know. Mm. I still believe. Mm, I still a nice believe. glass of, of white wine, chilled. Well, that's my quarantine, guys, so. <laughs> well, yeah. Interesting. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on with the show. Andy Stumpf, host of Cleared Hot, tactical asshole, wingsuit, diver, does he? He's not doing too much of that anymore. Hunter extraordinaire. I don't know. I was kind of waiting for him to volunteer a bunch of information, but he's playing a little tight to the vest, so I don't think we pried it out of him enough, but it was good. That's all right. But it's a hell of a show, folks. Let's get into it. Ready? Break. I want to, I want to come in with a controversial question. How is it that Chuck Norris is still on this pedestal and people respect him, his films, and his, and his uh, martial arts, but Steven Seagal is left in the gutter is scum. Like, what did Steven Seagal do, and what did Chuck Norris do uh, right and to wrong. be worlds apart at this point? I don't know. Maybe start off with sex trafficking, aligning with the foreign government. Um, 
I mean, take your pick being just a ferocious douchebag woman beating cunt. These are all very good points, Andy. Dude, uh, you got to remember Chuck Norris is actually like a legit dude. He uh, had his own system. Well, but I mean, Chuck Norris had his own, like he actually had video of him getting his ass whooped by Bruce Lee. At least he's like, uh, you know, like a somewhat, whereas, I mean, Seagal has some bitching like things on YouTube where he's just fucking straight arming these dudes and he's real sweaty and fat. And I'm like, I like, I don't know if it's like one of those weird monk uh, deals where like, you know, they're getting kicked in the balls and like everybody's laughing. Like, I don't know. Is it fake? Is it real? I don't know. Is Seagal a real badass? I mean, he's obviously looks terrible, but. I think we can answer the question about whether or not Seagal is a badass. I mean, it's, I watched those videos with him throwing people around and I actually don't watch him. I just watch the witting participant. And I'm more concerned about those people than I am the person actually, in all these like fake martial arts videos. I mean, I actually don't know much about Aikido, so I can't say it's a fake martial art. I, I can say I've never seen it used in the UFC, probably for good reason. I think that's a pretty good testing ground for efficacy. But on fake martial arts videos or like the no touch knockouts. I just spend all my time watching the people that are sitting there and participating. And I'm so far, I'm so much more concerned with them than I am the dude who's <laughs> pretending. <laughs> dude, it's like the, uh, uh, like the TV evangelist where they would like touch people and the people would fucking shake and like fall down and do all that crazy yes. stuff. I never watched the dude. Yes. I usually watch the people because uh, I'm like, like in the Academy Award goes to, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. They're crazier than the evangelist, in my opinion. Uh, no, that's because they're the they're the believers. They're the fans. They're the uh, they're the people that are there to prop up the circus, which is always the scariest fuckers. So, you know? do they believe it? Like, is it placebo or are they plants by the sermon, dude? I don't know. I think it's hard. Um, this is something like you know, like we'll always like try to put our mind and play this kind of empathy role of like, oh, what's in the mind of the person. I think for fucking people that that's like okay that they are in the even at that fucking place. Uh, I I don't think I can get inside the the brain of that individual. I don't think I want to. Have uh, your one man assault against Steven Seagal and the tactical asshole has that resulted in any feedback or any uh, uh, prickliness from the Seagal camp towards the tactical asshole? No, for a while I thought he had blocked me. And then I realized I just, I'm not really good at using Instagram and I was putting in the wrong name to try to tag him in uh, posts. So that was, I guess I had blocked myself. Uh, people just don't understand where the hatred comes from. And I don't actually have a good answer for it other than I just, I hate that son of a bitch with the deepest of fibers in my body. And uh, yeah, I want to, I try to devote one to two days per week if I can remember um, just to talking about him. I have a variety of pictures that I still need to post, you know, him holding birds of flight, him riding majestic animals, awkward photos with fans. It's, I have a full dossier on my phone. I spend an unreasonable <laughs> amount of time searching the internet for things to do with Steven Seagal. Yeah, he is like really douchey. And I, I was jamming texts up the other day because he's never seen hard to kill. Oh yeah. And like full disclosure, this I was my dad and I watched every Steven Seagal movie. It was like Seagal and Van Damme, and like man, some of those have aged well. But I mean, Andy, I, I'm just fucking with you. Like he is a dirtbag. Like he's turned into just a mega fucking dirtbag, and it's kind of a shame because I do see him as 
kind of in the era of this weird kind of kung fu uh, vigilante unnecessarily unnecessary like b-list violence movies he he was in there breaking elbows left and right man and we loved it don't get me wrong i've watched them all growing up as well he probably was on a trajectory to be a i mean normal person in air quotes as normal as you can be in that world i don't know where it split i mean john claude van damme is another person that i know almost nothing about other than to say he's probably had some work done on the old face <laughs> and uh is a bizarre human being who apparently lives in Hong Kong as a recluse. I mean, fuck, I don't know how these people go down these paths, but I support it. So was Seagal a police officer pre or post acting career? Uh, well, I think he became, uh, it was like, I, I want to say, uh, there are these organizations like police and like, uh, sheriff organizations that what they do is they badge private citizens as like help, but it's probably more of a celebrity thing. Andy, you ever encountered any of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, just trying to think back of whether or not you and I have any experience with that. And we absolutely do, yeah. Those <laughs> systems are completely and utterly – well, let me take that back. You know, so you're talking about the reserve police uh, officer program, which I'm no, – No specifics, please. No specifics. Of course. Yeah. No specifics. Um, but there are reserve programs. You know, H.R. 218 was a law passed by Bush to try to get more law enforcement officers, just make it easier for people – who in theory could make a difference if they had a gun in a situation where it was needed and make it easier for them to travel around the U.S. So H.R. 218 trumps all, you know, state or local concealed carry laws. And there are requirements. One is being an active duty officer or a reserve officer. And I'm sure there's some reserve programs that are totally legit because there are currency requirements and training that you have to do. And then I'm sure there are departments uh, similar to the one that Seagal probably got badged through where it's like hey you're a celebrity let's make a tv show let's get some yeah. uh notoriety for our department i just can't believe that they would accept that level of liability i mean they gave that dude a loaded gun and i've watched back through some of those shows just purely looking at it from a perspective of comedy and he's got that gun out of the holster more often than not and i just <laughs> cannot believe that they would allow that to happen you're like no way he has real bullets <laughs> They like like he gets out of the car at a traffic stop. He's like getting out with the gun out, you know. And it's like, and the his uh, his gunfighting skills are actually what <sighs> what really attract me to him. I love the pistol up by the face and like the real high uh, like like the high presentation. Never, it's just you know he does a lot of over the shoulder gun down. Uh, it just it looks fucking bad. So I have a couple podcast episodes banked, and I have another one where I sat down with Brian Callen. I'm just going to do it quarterly with him. And the three videos that we reviewed were Steven Seagal, Lawman, and multiple incidents of everybody else has their gun holstered, but he's the only one with it out. Um, and he, there is an example of exactly that. He's walking up to try to arrest a guy who's completely compliant, by the way. And he has his gun over his head, like pointing it over the top of an officer that's in front of him. And I'm pretty sure it's canted 90 degrees to the left and how and how they could say that that's a good idea for a law enforcing agency for not only one to badge that dude but then hey let's film it and put it out on national tv i mean i don't know who was signing on the dotted line on that bad boy but that guy should redo his risk assessment what city is this uh it's somewhere in louisiana uh it's okay. in, it, yeah, it's in it one of the parish in louisiana i think shack is a cop in Louisiana yeah. as well. Yeah, and Shaq's seven foot eight ass. And like I, the, the, the joke was like, hey, if you ever got to get away, just run away slowly. You know. Uh, do, 
Yeah. What what I think is interesting, Andy, um, and just having known you since you were, you know, an active SEAL, but then also into civilian life, um, like you were not like a, um, even though you're a super proficient shooter and good with all that stuff, like that really wasn't your stick. You weren't really like a, um, a gun guy. Like we would encounter guys in the teams that were fucking like into guns. And I remember you just being like, I don't know, I just point them in the right direction, pull the trigger and good things happen. And uh, um, so now that you've kind of gotten out and I mean, understanding tactics and whatnot and analyzing this stuff, uh, is there like a greater, almost like, um, where is you something you might've discounted in the past now that you get out in the civilian life? You're like, holy shit, dude, like nobody knows this stuff. I kind of took it for granted a little bit. I mean, not really. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, I love guns. Um, I still shoot all the time, but yeah, like you said, I've never been, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Some people go so deep down the rabbit hole of like long range shooting, you know, they'll go to sniper school and the next thing you know, they're, you know, they're buying all the components so they can hand press each and every one of their rounds and they're measuring out each individual grain of powder. And I'm all, I mean, I'm, I'm all about that, but they would just give me like boxes full of that stuff, which is much faster and more efficient than doing that in my garage. And I never had anything but good experiences with the stuff that they gave me. So I didn't, it just, it never, I didn't grow up doing that type of stuff. So I never really, I never really cared. I think the biggest thing that I didn't realize, cause I was, I was truly not paying attention to much other than my job when I was in is how fucking stupid some people are with guns and just how uh, ridiculously some people are unsafe and have no understanding of of what a gun is designed for and how to safely handle it and then on top of that another thing that has startled me is that the you know the percentage of gun owners that don't own a safe or have a secure place to actually store a gun yeah it seems uh what do they just throw in the old closet i mean it's hard to say i mean uh the stats right under the bed <laughs> some people do for sure i mean the stats are you know that 50 percent of gun owners don't actually own a safe which is which is pretty bizarre given that, at least in my opinion, you know, guns are designed to kill and people try to avoid saying that, but I don't think it, I think it's intellectually dishonest to say anything other than that. And I also don't think it weakens your argument for having a gun by saying that. But if we can agree that it's designed to do that, maybe having a place to store it appropriately is, is probably a good idea. So Andy, are you, are you alarmed by like the, just the stats that are coming out or do, have you, and I'm not looking for names or anything, uh, but have you encountered and talked to folks who, and you're like, what in the fuck? Like, I thought you were switched on. What in the fuck? You kind of see it all the time. I mean, Montana is pretty far to the right of center. I would say on a lot of their beliefs, it's uh, you see people with, you know, open carry stickers on the back of their, you know, Ford Focus or Toyota Prius or their little shitbox pickup truck. It's like, come take it. Like, I'll see the sticker. Come take it out of my cold, dead hand. Or people are, you know, walking around. I saw a guy walking around the other day in an Albertsons open carry in a, with like a fabric holster that last saw service probably in the Civil War. And it would, it would take him, I'm assuming 30 to 45 seconds to skin that bad boy. And it's, you know what I mean? Like, it, and, I don't know. And you look at those choices and it's like, what are, you, what are you guys doing? Like you're carrying this around for a show. And I, I don't know. To me, you know, guns are, it's a tool, not a, not a Harry Potter wand that magically solves problems. And people who have less exposure to guns, but unlimited 
access to them. I think a lot of the times that there's a gap in that understanding. I, I always kind of related to when I retired from the NFL and uh, came out and, you know, when I first met Andy through CrossFit and then realizing like, holy shit, man, uh, the people that we're talking to don't know anything about what I'm talking about or more importantly have no fucking concept of like, of uh, uh, the information that's out there. And I think like I'll probably as you got out of the service and you start looking around, you're like, holy shit, man, this is kind of scary. Like maybe we need a basic intelligence test with that Second Amendment, right? Or maybe the ability just to prove like proficiency. It is pretty crazy that you can go, I mean, here in Montana, I can I can purchase a gun in no bullshit, probably 10 minutes. Same here in and Texas. It would be shorter. Yeah. yeah, it would be shorter than that if they could automate. I mean, it's on a computer, right? And yeah. at this point, I know where to hit yes and where to hit no. It's like, am I a felon? No, I always laugh at that one. You know, are you currently on the uh, a fugitive from justice? Like, how many times has somebody hit yes on that one? Well, it's just but, trying to get you in perjury is what they're really going for. So they know people are going to lie. I don't know what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> laugh my ass off. But you know, it's it's ten minutes, and the barrier to entry is low, and then you leave with whatever you bought, and it's kind of just on you. And don't get me wrong, I fully support the Second Amendment, but I also support being reasonable. So. I don't know. I mean, I am almost at the point now where it's like, hey, you want to purchase a gun? You need to show proof that you have a safe or you have to make a safe purchase with your gun just so you can at least, you know, bridge the gap when it comes to storage. No, I, I feel way better uh, keeping guns in a safe. I mean, I, I think I keep like one rifle out, you know, just to run if I got to run out and shoot hogs. But, you know, like shit, it's a lever action and the fucking bullets aren't in it. So, yeah, yeah you know, living up here in a more rural area, I've become pretty good friends with a lot of the law enforcement and a lot of the stuff they're doing. And a lot of the crimes are based around stealing, uh, right. weapons because they, yeah, it becomes part of their economic system. They steal the weapons locally. They take them out of state, trade them for drugs, bring the drugs back in. And then who knows where that weapons goes, but it's just, it's part of the economic system. And, you know, one of the easiest ways to interrupt that would be to, reduce their access to the firearm. Do you think it's laziness or just cheap? Like, ah, you know, I already spent 800,000 bucks on this. I don't want to have to go spend, you know, at least that much money on a safe, which I mean, I can't imagine not having a safe. That's where I, you know, on the weekend when I lock my kids' computers up, that's where I put them. You know, I take their, la their Chromebooks. I'm like, oh, school's over. Let me lock these things up. Yeah, I don't know why. It's much like the, you know, it's hard to get into the mind of the person who's at the evangelical church having a seizure and falling over backwards when somebody touches your forehead. I don't understand, unless it's the disconnect and they don't understand what the implement is designed for, or they just don't want to take it seriously, or they think it'll never happen to me. It, there, is, there's some disconnect there. But. Is it a status symbol? I mean, that was, that's something that kind of struck me weird. Like, um, you know, when this whole quarantine deal started and there was like a huge rush on, on guns, I had a buddy of mine who I went to Berkeley with uh, reach out to me and he's like, hey, my wife told me that we need, that uh, we should get some guns. So I'm going to get some guns. And I kind of was like, I can't believe you. First of all, I can't believe you told me that. But second of all, like yeah. they've never owned a gun. His wife was super anti-gun. And then all of a sudden this thing started and she's like, how come we don't have any guns? He's like, so he reached out and was like, hey, uh, uh, I'm going to get these. Uh, I'm going to look at these. And he lives in uh, Scottsdale. So he goes to some gun place and like he's, you know, it's like, hey, what about the, well, what do you have available? And I think he ended up, like he sent me a picture. I was like, just get like a Glock and like an 870 shotgun. Like you should pretty much be covered with like a Glock 19 and an 870 shotgun. Like if you can get those, come home with them. Other than that, don't buy anything weird. And uh, that's what he ended up buying. But I just was like, and then I'm like, are, are you going to go, 
have somebody teach you how to shoot these things? Have you ever shot a gun? He's like, no. So, and then I guess uh, he went was able to get some lessons or, or at least uh, some instruction on it. But I was like, yo, man, this is a guy who's been a lifelong, like, not gun owner. All of a sudden, this deal sp- the, you know, sparks up, and now they feel that they need a gun. And I'm like, what do you think's going to happen? Some dude's going to come in strong into your house, and, you know, you're going to fucking fight him off with your uh, 870, and your wife's going to be over there fucking, you know, laying suppression fire or something? And he's like, I don't know. We really hadn't thought it through yet. <laughs> It's, uh, the, you know, the pictures of the gun stores in California where, you know, people were around the block and then you start hearing that there's no ammo for sale. So I, I just, I look at those lines and I wonder how many people in those lines had spent an inordinate amount of time arguing against the second amendment until they were in a position where they felt threatened. And then they want to go pick up their Harry Potter wand. And like you said, they will go purchase a weapon. Probably. I mean, I know plenty of people you and I both have had this experience somewhere in the New Mexico area where somebody has a lot of guns and no bullets and you really need both. You really need to have both. And then you need to have some training and currency and competency and all of those things. And you know, what are these? So the people that were anti second amendment and I don't care what people think. I mean, if you're anti second amendment, cool, believe what you want. If you're pro second amendment, cool, believe what you want. But for those of the people that, it changed their mind because of this. What are you going to do again? Like I bet you those people in line at the store didn't buy a safe to go with their gun. So what are you going to do with it after this ends? You're going to take it back to the gun store. You're going to be responsible with this thing, or is it going to sit around in your house and become an heirloom and gather, gather dust? It, I don't know. Uh, I th- it's I th- wild times we're living in. I think they're going to fire sale them. Uh, I really do. I, I think people were just going to fire sale stuff. I mean, people have already overpaid and they're going to lose money. Or maybe they just, like you said, throw it in the sock drawer and fucking forget about it. It uh, man, it seems ridiculous. I mean, uh, I was kind of bummed because I uh, I got a rifle I wanted to sight. And um, shit, they, they closed down all the ranges. So what do you work on? Dry firing. You know, drawing out of a pistol. And so I try to get a couple nights a week where I get some dry firing in just to stay consistent on that. Because, I mean, for... You know, as you know, I mean, that was your recommendation. If you can't shoot, you might as well dry fire and work on your, uh, you know, manipulation skills. Surprised you can't shoot at your house. Uh, we can. Um, the only issue comes down to uh, the, well, I, I'll shoot with suppressors around here. I have a little twenty-two with a suppressor on it. We'll shoot. But for the most part, like uh, they built a school in our backyard. So our neighbors sold them 140 acres and they demoed our whole, like, uh, that whole hillside and they built a school. So I don't know. I'm just, uh, this is Texas. I'm sure people at school hearing this. Yeah. But, uh, they also, I don't know if you remember where the building was. You could see maybe like four or five homes, probably now on that hillside, there's 300 homes. So we effectively moved Hmm. to the country and then the, and the city just moved us. Yeah, that sucks. I have uh, 20 acres that I live on and it abuts about a million acres of national forest and logging area that's never going to be developed. So sucks to be you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I tried. Uh, it was funny. Whenever I, I uh, laugh with my wife, I'm like, we wanted to go to Whitefish. I'm like, that's that would have been my fucking yeah. number one. And uh, she's like, yeah, but it's too cold. And then I'm like, it's not right, too well, cold. Buy a jacket. Here? I'll go to White yeah. and I'll be back. Buy a jacket. I, exactly. <laughs> uh, dude, but uh, uh, like, yeah, you know, I, I always see the pictures of you skiing and snowboarding. And I'm like, fuck, man, that's great. I, um, I wish we had more access to that. But, you know, we're in Texas and it's about a fucking 12-hour drive to anywhere like that. 
I can't believe they developed that whole area by your house. You guys, I mean, it almost from certain areas of where you were, it would seem like you were very isolated. You know, you could, you could feel like you were touching some of the undeveloped areas. And if they've all just completely surrounded that, man, that changes that for sure. Yeah, but what's nice is uh, my neighbor still has the horse farm, so we have all those horses. And then what's cool is the guy that, that built our home dug it down 30 feet. So we're like down by the creek, so I can't see any of it. I mean, we can hear it, and I know it's there. You know, like coming down the driveway, we can see it. But yeah, no, they uh, – um, it, it was a weird deal. My neighbor like uh, like sold a, basically sold the school district land, and they said, hey, we're planning on building a, uh, like a school here, like a small like elementary school. And then we looked at pictures – I was like, oh, okay, like in 10 years? All right, I mean, that's okay in 10 years. The kids will be, you know, in high school and probably through, and if we don't like it, we can move. And then all of a sudden, like, he signed the papers, and, like, two months later, we come home, and they demoed the whole hillside, <laughs> and they built uh, a school that's actually, like, a middle school, but it's built as a high school and has five football Oh, fields. Jesus. It's fucking, like, huge. And and they built this monster of a school, and, like, I'm like looking at it. I'm like, uh, I thought this this doesn't look anything like the pictures that they that they sold. And they kind of like, like that was the bait and switch. And uh, they, and then they were. I was like, what happened to the ten years? Like, oh well, you know, the school district uh, voted to ramp up. And like, I'm like, so you guys sold all the residents, sold the old man on one thing, and then as soon as you inked the papers, you went and you did exactly what you wanted. Oh, all right, well, I guess it's fucking how it works with uh, politics. The old bait and switch. That's day one yeah. shit, John. I know. Hey, uh, what, uh, how do you feel about what's going on? I mean, I, I know it's an open-ended question, but it's yeah. just kind of, uh, uh, you know, we've never seen a time like this. I know you and I and the guys have never lived into, through anything like this. And, you know, the closest, I guess, uh, the closest data point we have is 2000 or uh, 1918 with, you know, the influenza epidemic. But I mean, we've you've uh, in the teams, I mean, you saw SARS, you saw Mars. I mean, you've seen all of this mm -hmm. type of stuff. Um, yeah. What What's kind of your? I I mean, I'm sure you have a private take and more your public take, but I'm just more interested in like what your thought process on this is. Yeah, no, I mean, not really. I mean, I. It's hard to say. You know, I think that the biggest mistake that the government has made is not being honest about the fact that they don't really know either. It's okay to say like we don't know. Um, I think that they're making. I have to assume that the vast majority of people are making decisions, at least with the best of intentions in mind. I don't know whether or not those decisions, if you give them enough time, are going to net out being positive or negative. But I mean, if you look at the mathematical models, I was reading an uh, article by Dr. Peter Atia maybe two weeks ago, you know, and he was just, I mean, he was basically revising his position, you know, and which I know some medical professionals here in the Flathead Valley we're kind of doing the same thing. Like when they first started hearing about this, they shut down all elective procedures in the hospital and they were completely ramping up for, you know, this surge, which is what we were getting told, right? This pandemic was coming. It was going to impact and affect everybody. And I think in the state of Montana, I haven't looked at it recently. And I actually advise people not to look at that stupid pandemic tracker because it's not really informing anybody's decision. And they're like, Oh, I got to make sure that the numbers you know, I want to check to make sure that the numbers are going to start going down. It's like, that's not how that ticker works. That ticker is only increasing. So it's not really going to inform your decision-making process, but in the Valley, you know, now they're laying, they're furloughing hospital staff because they shut down the largest, you know, you look at 
the medical system, those elective procedures are ringing the cash register for a lot of the overhead. Sure. They shut, they shut that down. And you know, some of the doctors are sitting there twiddling their thumbs, which is a good thing, except for the fact they put themselves in a financial corner and now they have to revamp up that system. And they base it off of the first mathematical models. And you go back to that article that Peter Atia was writing, you know, he was looking, he was just changing around the, the, the digit, you know, the tenth of a percent. And if you moved it up or down by one, it changed the outcome in these models by millions of people. And still nobody knows the accurate number that should be put in there. And I think it just puts us into a place where people are, are shooting from the hip. You know, they're making decisions that are based off the best information that they have, but maybe it would be better just to take a knee for a second and gather some more information. You know, they sent the, you know, the Mercy Hospital ship to New York it saw like 127 people total. They were making field hospitals in, um, what is it, Central Park. I would love to see a picture of one of those hospitals from the inside because I, I, I saw the articles that they were being created, but I never saw pictures or anything about how many patients that they were treated or the pictures of those wards being full. And then I look around, you know, so in the Flathead Valley or in Montana, I think there's been like 700 cases total in the state now mind you it's a state of like 1,008,000 people um and there's been i think under 20 deaths but there's been huge economic disruption um you know my kids are out of school uh schools are shut down for the rest of the year businesses are just now starting to open local businesses are either at the point where they're going to default People are not working. You know, they're applying for the you know paycheck protection program. If they're a business, a lot of people that I know of haven't even heard back from the federal government. So there's it, there's this wild impact, and then you then you look at the destruction that it's had on a loss of life. And I don't want anybody to die, but I hope people realize we all have a death sentence, so we're all going to get there at some point. So even if you hide yourself in a rubber room, guess what? The Grim Reaper is still going to come for you at some point, and I just, I mean, I, I was talking about this yesterday. I don't know what this is going to look like 12 months from now, you know, in the rear view uh, mirror. Dude, that is exactly where I've been at. Uh, I don't think we're going to realize the effect of the economic downturn and what's happened for at least 12 months. And it's going to be three years before we see this thing like right itself. I mean, just the fact that and like, then, yeah. your business that, that aren't going to reopen. So you have a place that used to make money and was a business that's no longer going to open and that's just fucking wiped. What about those people, you know? And it's easier to turn it off than to turn it back on. You know, I look at now Montana is getting ready to approach phase two of reopening and they're letting restaurants reopen, but at like 50% capacity. And from my understanding of that business model, they're not operating on margins that allow for 50% capacity. So these, these places are really struggling. And let's say that, let's say that this uh, virus kills, let's say a half a million people. That's still less than one year's worth of heart disease or, alcohol-related incidents or vehicle crashes. And, and again, I don't want anybody to die, but are we are we doing more harm than good by crushing our economy to save half a million lives of which that many people are going to die anyway? And again, I'm not an expert in any of this, but that's the, that's the mental ping pong that I've been playing. I don't want people to die, but at the same time, I don't want our country to be destroyed either. And I see people walking around scared to death right like i don't know how oh. many people i have seen driving with surgical Mass gloves on. 
Yeah, well, well, you know, the, the craziest shit is I'll go into the grocery store and there'll be somebody with a mask on wearing gloves and they, they misunderstand. Like if you watch a doctor wearing gloves, they take the gloves off and put a new pair of gloves on every time they have an interaction. It's not like, hey, I have gloves on, so now I can touch anything. No, it's, it's a one-time transference protection. So I see people grocery shopping. They're touching carts. They're touching uh, you know, fruit and vegetables and all that stuff, the normal stuff that you would do. And they have gloves on, and they're looking at their cell phone, and then they're reaching down to touch their cell phone, and then they'll come up with their hand, pull their mask down and like scratch their face, put their mask back up. And it's like, yeah. And then put the, the food back on the shelf and then pick yeah, one up, like, put it back on the shelf. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, and I understand why they're doing it because they're scared, but they're operating. They're, they're just not educated on the protective measures that they would need to actually take. Right. You have to have a box of latex gloves with you inside the grocery store for every interaction. It's in, you know, they feel like they're doing the right thing. And again, I think they have the, the best of intentions, but the best of intentions is not what's going to help our society or our economy get out of this. We need to actually base our actions off of what I think, you know, the best information that we have. And I think right now we don't, we don't know. I mean, the mathematical models, the more you look at this and the more time that we have like dealing with this situation, I mean, it's up to somebody smarter than me to say whether or not we made the right call, but locking down our economy seems to be making less and less sense the more that the mathematical models have updated data. Well, and, and the uh, the rate of suicide has gone through the roof, so that's going to outpace. And then, like, you look at the lingering effects. But, I mean, I was telling – I think I was telling text yesterday. I saw a deal where um, – I, I can't remember what the virus was, but something came out in 1969 and I think it killed a hundred thousand Americans related. Was it like H2N2? Uh, I'm probably wrong on that one, but um, it killed millions worldwide. And that was a year we had Woodstock. So, I mean like, hey, like they didn't shut down we, they had the world's biggest music festival at the time in that yeah. year when that was right in the midst of it. So I wonder if this, uh, is kind of a, you know, media driven if like, you know, maybe the newspapers or whatnot, like people didn't have the same communication with, you know, TV and, you know, being as shitty as it was in probably 1969, but radio and how that kind of went. And I think that there's so much information at our fingertips that it's almost this like paralysis and everybody has an opinion. And unfortunately, like you said, man, um, uh, one of the interesting things I had this strange realization, which was, um, as I was watching all this conspiracy theory stuff and I think like, uh, and I ended up finding a quote that supported it, but it's like, I think people want to buy into the conspiracy to have this feeling that there's this like smart, uh, James Bond fucking character at the top pulling strings for this nefarious action. And this whole thing is, uh, you know, orchestrated in such a way than the true truth where nobody knows what the fuck they're doing and they're just pretending like they know what they're doing, hoping to God they make the right decision with, with not the right information. And I think like that feeling of like the, the ship is kind of rudderless and we're going wherever it's going to go is more, uh, is more alarming to people than the idea that there's some global conspiracy to fucking, you know, manipulate you and make Bill Gates the, you know, the king of the world. That little ditty and the sound of my smooth, sensual, yet strong voice means you're about halfway through our chat and you've earned yourself a little brain break brought to you by our friends at Train Heroic. And I know you're like, Callie, your voice is smooth, sensual, yet strong, but what does that have to do with Train Heroic? And the answer is it doesn't. But here's why we at Power Athlete think it's important that you're aware of what Train Heroic is capable of. Their whole jam is to empower you to train without limits. Sound familiar? 
That means that you can take your little gym business or side hustle and absolutely blow the fucking doors off of it. Their immersive training solutions allow you to train athletes from New York to Nicaragua. And FYI, if you consult a map, those places are really far from each other. Gym space is not an issue. Distance, not an issue. And scheduling, well, we already know that time is an illusion, but it's even more illusiony with Train Heroic. With Train Heroic, you can provide an engaging, flexible, and affordable training experience for your people wherever they are on this flat earth. They provide everything you need to look like a pro, even if you're a complete Luke Summers, and transition into this brave new world of online training. The best part is that they give you a fortnight of free usage. That's two weeks for anyone not born in the 1700s. And when that wraps up, you can keep the party going for the price of a Chipotle burrito. But wait, there's more. A burrito without guac. And you pay only as your business gains grow. The whole crew uses Train Heroic and has done so for years. There's a reason we are taking the time to mention it, and it's not because they promised us a party barge or a suitcase full of collectible beanie babies, uh, baby tigers, or anything else that you deem to be extremely valuable. It's simply because we like them, we use them, and we believe in what they can do for your business and your athletes. Power Athlete has grown by 50% for the last four years because of Train Heroic. And in the words of one of my old coaches, you can't argue with results. Head over to trainheroic.com, click on the free trial button in the upper right-hand corner, and get started today. Now back to the show. Yeah, people, I don't, and I don't know why, people want other people to, to drive the ship. They're more scared of it being they're more scared of them having to take control of the ship for themselves than it having, you know, being rudderless. And, you know, you mentioned information. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I have access to the same information everybody else does, whether it's through my phone, you know, a screen of any type is essentially how we're consuming information now, you know, laptop, tablet, phone, TV. And I just started thinking about the percentage of information that most people consume in 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 the context of, I wonder what percentage of it is positive versus negative. And I think it's gotta be at least 80%, if not higher negative information. And you look at the, the, what's going on right now, right? This pandemic. Oh my God. For the last two months, probably the first month, at least though, every piece of information that was just getting shotgun fed to people was negative, 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 negative. And if you if you're constantly uptaking negative information, that's going to inform the behaviors that come out of that. And people, although in my opinion at least, although they have almost un, unlimited access to information, I think you have to be very cautious with how much you're actually willing to consume because it'll fuck your brain up. If that's all you're getting bombarded with, the next thing you know you're driving your car by yourself wearing a mask and surgical gloves saying that you know you're protecting yourself from yourself i guess and i, I would guess like not to see even those just, people i'd like not to see even those how people much Andy, drive. but like shut up well, Luke, how you done. consume it i want to see the people carry on who are driving their car carry their driving their cars by themselves with a mask and gloves on they need to stay quarantined after this I, but going back to consuming the information and how much don't you think there's a there's an obligation yeah. to under like learn how to consume that info I guess if you're reading one side, go try to learn the other side of it 
as well. And then like, find out where you feel that truth lies within the middle of there. Right. Luke, like, but I don't uh, think but, most people do that. Yeah. I was going to say, man, most people are more in the, uh, to the, the camp of like, let's make a jump to conclusions map. Based uh, off man, of a title. Yeah. And ba- then yeah. confirmation bias to go with that is what I've found. Yeah, no, I, um, I try to, uh, through like social media, I try to look at like, uh, you know, some conservative pages and more liberal stuff. And you kind of interesting, like, see, like you see, like takes on two pieces of information and they're both spun different ways. Like I remember, uh, if you want to understand or hear anything about, you know, uh, international stuff, which the U S never covers anything internationally, unless it's fucking like Virgil world war three, like Algiers and the BBC. I mean, the, the stuff that's happening around the world, um, is like, is insane and uh, all we you know hear about is the kardashians this or you know this other nonsense like like what's pretty amazing is that the coronavirus deal has completely dominated every ounce of media that's out there that's coming into us like uh like there's no talk about what's happening overseas and here and i mean it's pretty amazing like if and i'm not saying this is disinformation or this is some nefarious plot but like if if you wanted to really uh, confuse people and put people into a panic and like make sure that they weren't consuming any other information, this thing is incredible. Like, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting model that um, if you were to march tanks down uh, Main Street, I think people would feel like to rise up and be like, hey, man, like I'm not going to allow this to happen in my country. And I think you'd have patriots in that way, but create an is- invisible killer that you can't see that's anywhere that's attached to everybody so that you become uh, suspicious of every human being on the planet. And I'm going to shelter in place and allow people to take away my first amendment and really all my rights, you know, the life to pursuit of liberty life and, or what is it? Uh, um, the pursuit life, of life, liberty life and pursuit, pursuit of happiness, happiness. Uh, right to assembly, right to freedom of religion, right to uh, free speech. I mean, they're just fucking abandoning all these things for the greater good. That's, I think that's to me is scary. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's important to point out, you know, if you look at the media outlets and like, a, in my opinion, at least the vast majority of what they're saying is incredibly negative, right? Because if it bleeds, it leads, you know, um, those outlets, you have to remember that they make their money just like any other TV station or show. It's on the ad breaks in between and Fox News or CNN or pick your poison. They are their Their pay scale is on the same rating system as the Big Bang Theory. You know, they're all operating inside of the same ecosystem. You can't forget that. They're there to sell money on the ad breaks. So they're there to get you to pay attention long enough so they can make it to the Tide Soap or Budweiser ad. And if you view it through that lens, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And maybe I can, you know, maybe I don't need to be watching this 24-7. Yeah, so it's more incentivizing to be polarizing, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's how they get their ratings. They're they're, they're for based off of their ratings. Yeah, and and they're for profits. And where the other issue comes, um, it's even more cutthroat now. And I think this is because of there's so much free information uh, available. Like I mean, uh, like Wall Street Journal and all these uh, other magazines. Like you click on their articles, and you obviously have to be a member to view it. But think about like if you're trying to do a subscription model when everybody's giving out uh, this ton of information. I mean. It, uh, it, it's probably become more cutthroat than anything for, for ratings. That I think that's why people, and especially in the, in the news media, like the middle of the road, non-crazy, non-polarizing, here's the information I was presented, I think is no longer, we're not going to see that anymore. I think it's either going to be, you know, like, you know, uh, the meme of the, like the house on fire and the dude sitting on the couch just looking around going, everything's fine, versus the other people that are running around screaming outside of a fucking campfire. So I think it's really, it's going to be, so polarizing that it's going to be tough to kind of disseminate where the middle is. 
So I, I was talking to Bo Colombo the other day, and he introduced me to the FCC Fairness Doctrine. Have you guys heard this? No. Nope. So in the 40s, late 40s, it was introduced, and it required broadcast licenses to both to present controversial issues um, in honest, equitable, and balanced fashion. So they would have to present both sides of the stories. So you couldn't just lay out a bias, right? But it was repealed in uh, 87. Why? Well, CNN um, on Wikipedia, started. Wikipedia, and I do not know. CNN started it in 1980, and then that's when you actually got to pay for space and time, like on marketing for the news. Before it was just the nightly news, and there was no incentive for for arranging stories and times it was delivering to your home. But then, once you started pay for advertising, then those dollars got into the the minds of who was producing this the shows and the news. Wow! So here it is, 1985. FCC chairman, um, a communications attorney determined that the general fairness doctrine obligations violated free speech rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. Nice. <laughs> so my free speech rights extend to fucking uh, fabricating stories and making up uh, amazing things. So full disclosure, like I'm reading a couple lines out of the, a very long document. So there, there could be more to this, but I think we all probably lie in that same camp where it'd be interesting to hear a single network present both sides of a polarizing issue, you know, and like let, let nobody, nobody would watch their opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah nobody, nobody would watch, watch that network anymore oh, yeah. because they, you tune into whatever it's, you know, my dad is hilarious. He blindly reposts shit on Facebook, which thankfully is the only medium that he currently is on and understands how to operate. But the number of things that he has reposted that are factually untrue, but align with his narrative of the world, I just, I've given up. I'm like, God damn it. That has to be like, that has to He's happen a... at a certain age because my dad's in the same boat. It's uh, like, yeah. I think when you're, if you were born in, before 1950, you're just an automatic reposter, forward the chain mails. He sends me these emails as well. And it's just like, <laughs> But here's the example. Like he's not going to flip flop back and forth to a network to get the other side. He's just like, oh, like this is what it is. It's on the internet. I'm like, God damn it, Dad! Right. Can you at least share less of whatever it is the hell that you're looking at? You're like, uh, you're like calling people and apologizing. Like, hey, um, I know you're friends with my dad. Uh, don't mind any uh, of this. He's just real lonely. Like, I just well, sit I, there with popcorn and just let it go. Now, I mean, my dad's hilarious. Did I ever tell you about? Uh, so I bought him his first laptop, John. Did I ever tell you about? Uh, teaching him to send emails. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh my God. So I bought him a laptop. Uh, it was like back in 2010. This is how late to the game he is. And he called me up one day. He's like, Hey, how come you're not responding to my emails? And I was like, I haven't, I looked in my inbox folder. I'm like, I haven't gotten a single email. I was like, I'm writing you emails all the time. Why aren't you responding? And I'm like, well, walk me through what you're doing. He's like, I open up Google, you know, I go into Gmail and I write you an email and then I close the computer. I was like, Hey, go to your drafts folder real fast. And there's just, he did, wasn't hitting send. <laughs> he was just typing and closing his computer. I'm like, God damn it. How do you work with this? I can't work with this level of capacity. <laughs> my old man. Yeah. My old man is like his third month into a smartphone. So he's like, did uh -huh. you know you could do th this, this, and this? I'm like, Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 yeah and, so uh, do four-year-olds. And it's yeah. like his, certainly his, uh, his chain letters have ramped up along with his Facebook posts and also his expertise on, you know, his, the things that confirm his biases. So it's 
interesting. Hey, we laugh about it now, but you, but you just wait. When my when my kids are in their forties, I'm gonna be oh, sitting dude. there trying to fi figure out like, how do I use this teleporter device again? Like, I just keep ending up going to Mars. I'm trying to go to the like it's gonna be just a shit show. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's uh. Do you think um, uh, I was kind of thinking about like uh, why is it that some of the older people are influenced? Like, uh, because I mean, I I see it all the time. Like, uh, my brother's uh, old investigator, Sam Zabala. Uh, he, you know, was a cop in, uh, in LA and then he moved out to like Big Bear and then they just moved to North Carolina and like the amount of stuff that he posts, it's kind of how like I, I, I figure out some of this really right wing crazy stuff and like, and I view like the right wing, like, like for me, like if you're too far to the right or too far to the left, I start getting nervous. Like Same. I, you know, so I, I want like the middle of the road kind of information and like, so he's kind of my portal for all the really, really far off right stuff. And uh, like going through this, I'm like, for, first of all, man, like who are the people that are creating this much information and how, like, is, is it happening for a reason? Because you're reasoning it and you're like, ah, this feels like, um, you know, like disinformation, like almost like the, uh, you know, in Russia and communist countries where, you know, they have this whole branch of the, um, you know, of the news and the media that's basically just creating disinformation. Like America is a bad guy. And it, it, that's what it feels like. It feels like these these groups have kind of taken a shot, and uh, you know, and they kind of almost prey upon the idea of like, you know, painting this picture in the past of this things were so great then if we can only go back. And if you look at the times, like it wasn't any better then than it is today. I mean, if anything, we live in the best time ever. You know, pre nineteen or twenty twenty. I still think um, we do. I mean, it's we still do. I think if you, if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, but you know, people are locked in their house, so they have plenty of time to create this wazoo shit they have nothing else to do but i think the delivery mechanism for information is just so incredibly powerful you know they these again to go back to you know just traditional mainstream media everything is about you know basically two minute chunks and you throw up the right graphics and you have powerful visuals like it's it's really compelling if that's all that you consume i can totally see why it hooks people especially if they don't realize they need to take the time to do a little bit of research on their own. I mean, that, again, it's a, it's a ratings-based organization. So they're sitting there creating these incredibly impactful and powerful two-minute chunks, and it just grabs people hook, line, and sinker. Oh, man. And then, like, John, I think I shot you this, or maybe it went around, but Mark Cuban did, like, a secret shopper thing in uh, yeah. up in Dallas. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty interesting. So, Andy, uh, uh, Mark Cuban pushed out, like, a 1,000 resource a thousand individuals to go through and like basically scorecard the partial openings to see how compliant they were with the phase one COVID restrictions. Yep. And like, it came back pretty, pretty poorly, you know, and it's just interesting. There was no opinion. It was a presentation of data and what, what the plan was moving forward. Uh, he's going to like certain places he was contacting privately to let him know and, and whatnot. Now I got into the comments, man. And like, I was joking around because you're right, dude, it, there's, there's two scenarios that I see play out because there's such visceral comments in that section. It's a, like it, they're Russian bots. Like someone is placing this toxic type of response to a dude doing what he thinks is good for his, com uh, his community or B people are fucking brainwashed by whatever, you know, that, that loop that you're saying, right? Like you, you watch uh, mindlessly, your biases are confirmed, be you become aggravated, your opinions become more rooted. And like, you have no tolerance for anything that is like 
a fraction or a margin outside of your value system, right? And it was just like reading these comments was fucking bonkers, man. Oh yeah, no, people were losing their minds. They were like, "Who is this Mark Cuban? Fuck him!" You know, the I mean, dude, people were like so up in arms about it. Uh, I'm, you know, like there was some nefarious plot for billionaires to control us. That's another interesting one that there's this like, you know, because well, and and I'll tell you, dude, that this happens with every uh, like it happened in Russia, it happened in uh, it happened in China. Whenever this kind of socialist deal comes in, uh, it always comes with like anybody who has more than me is to blame for this. And then what they do is like, uh, you know, they had a huge famine in Russia after that whole socialist deal because they went through and the farmers had more. So they killed all the farmers and took their land. And the people that took it had no idea how to farm and how to raise uh, animals. So they had this terrible famine and all these people died because they fucking just went and executed the, the people they viewed who had more, who had land, who had animals. Obviously, they're to blame. And I, I, that's what um, and that's kind of been the catalyst, especially. And then you look at the Chinese. They did the same thing. You know, the Yanhai Shek resolution. Now, all of a sudden, there's not a billionaire. Every one of the people that's in the Chinese, uh, like a, a government kind of whatever their, you know, kangaroo court deal is, is a billionaire. So, I mean, they have, it, it's just, it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's animal farm all over again. You know, all of a sudden, uh, animals look in and the pigs are wearing human clothes and they're eating at the table and going out and changing the, uh, the writing and the rules on the wall. So, um, how, do we, how do we navigate this brave new world? I mean, that's a question for somebody exponentially smarter than myself. But Andy, I mean, you view yourself as being exponentially smarter than everybody, so that's why the question's no. posed to you. Yeah, and so I do we. view myself as being a functional fucking retard, which I don't think you can say that word, but I just said it, so people are going to have to deal with that. Dude, this is part of, uh, this is part of your self-deprecating humor. But like, I, 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 and I only know this because we know each other on a personal level and have for many years. Uh, I think what, what we've... I think what, uh, what I think at least going forward in this brave new world, what's going to be the sign of intelligence is the ability to ask intelligent questions yeah. and, and the, uh, you know, the ability to be humble enough to be like, I don't know, uh, but I'm asking this question and I'm going to find somebody that gives me an answer, not that just doesn't fill my cognitive bias, but actually uh, uh, answers the question at which I'm asking. And I, I, I really view the people that are asking questions and want legitimate answers more so than just like looking for definitive inflammatory statements that support their fucking narrative. And like now for me, um, if I listen to somebody or if I'm listening to a podcast or, you know, listening to somebody, what I get nervous of is just nothing but definitive statements. Like I was watching, um, uh, who's it? Tucker Carlson. Uh, I saw a couple clips from him. All he does is make these like inflammatory, uh, you know, definitive statements. And I'm like, where's the person yeah. asking these questions or who's the individual? It's like, Hey, um, this is a situation that's happening. I don't know. We don't have enough information and just ask the questions to have some discourse. And I feel like that to me going forward is the, the most intelligent people that I, I encounter, the ones that are asking questions that want to be educated and are looking for answers, not just trying to give you the fucking narrative. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a, a mastery of a single subject where I would feel com comfortable making a definitive statement. I mean, I can offer people, my opinions when they ask questions and i always try to frame it in that like this is my opinion based off of my experience and the things that i have seen but i think you i mean maybe it needs to start with people realizing they need to challenge their beliefs instead of looking for things that reinforce their beliefs i mean i get i, I can't think of a single thing that i believe that i'm unwilling to at least analyze or look at an opposing opinion on I might, at the end of the day, I might not agree with that opposing opinion, but I'm more than happy to have my 
beliefs challenge and I've changed my mind on things, you know, over time. But if people get to a point where they're unwilling to do that, I think we're just fucksville. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, dude. It, it feels that people are so rigid now. Like when you discuss anything, it's, uh, it, it's like, um, you know, a questioning of beliefs is like this, uh, you know, you know, like you're somehow attacking people at their core. And I, man, it seems really weird. Uh, it, it's almost like people are no longer, um, you know, putting themselves like, Hey, like, and, and from, you know, going to Berkeley and also my rhetoric major, we had to argue both sides. So I had classes where you had to, uh, you know, pick subjects or whatnot, argue both sides. And even in a, you know, different papers present both sides of the argument and then work through that stuff. And I think that the, the idea of deductive reasoning and listening to the information and trying to get in. And, and I think what's really hard with the COVID deal is we don't, like, like you said, there's a ticker for this thing and you're seeing all these numbers click up and you're going through it and you're like, okay, well, how many people a, a day died in the United States before this? It's about 7,500 people. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking at like, okay, well, how come, um, you know, the reports coming out of New Jersey are like, you know, healthy individual comes in, gets tested, and he's not going to make it. And then, you know, you have other people that, you know, there was a deal with fire, a fire department where uh, 30 of the dudes tested positive and didn't know it. They just thought they all had like a little bit of a head cold and felt a little run down. Yeah. So that's, you know, and I was talking to Doc Parsley about this last night. I'm like, why is it like one person's dying and the other person just, you know, goes on with their life? And he's like, you know, there's no, uh, there's no substitute for a young immune system and there's no, like, you're not going to gain immune function in the fight. Like these are things that have built up over time. And if you're not ready for this fight, it's like, you know, man, you go into a fight unprepared, you're going to get knocked out. You know, it's not like all of a sudden as the fight's happening, they can somehow do something to make you a better fighter. Yeah. Like the work has to be done. And Percy's like, I think the people going in are just the immune system's not, well, uh, not ready, or this is giving us a really indi- interesting indication of how unhealthy the population is where if, you know, healthy individuals and young people, this is just feels like I got a tickle in my throat or, you know, some, or I didn't even know I had it, to people dying. And it's like, man, like, is this really the state of our deal? And I thought that was a interesting position by him. And he's like, man, like, maybe, maybe it's just showcasing exactly how unhealthy people are. And I was like, ooh, that's... Yeah, I mean, I would have to imagine, again, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I know a lot of doctors, and they'll be the first people to tell you that it's a practice, not a science, because it's not precise but i mean i'm sure every year the flu kills people that from an outside perspective they would look like they should just absolutely kick it in the balls but i bet you you know you know people die every year from eating peanuts too because they have a more severe reaction than would have necessarily been thought appropriate i mean you're always going to have the anomaly and i get really concerned when people try to start painting the norm with that anomaly like the one you know a uh, 25 year old goes in no underlying symptoms and covid-19 kills him that's that's horrendous I and mean, that's catastrophic but that doesn't mean that every person in that age group is going to have that happen I, it you know the flu might have killed that person as well too or what you know maybe he had a genetic makeup that predisposed him to something like this but i mean what's going to happen when covid-20 rolls around covid-21 covid i mean like it's not like we're at the end of this i mean were we going to redo this every single time and that's that's what I'm spending more of my time thinking about. Like, obviously we'll navigate our way through this, but how can I set myself up and protect myself, you know, not necessarily physically, but from an economic business model or what I want to do with my life moving forward, because this isn't the only time that this is going to happen. I feel like a lot of people are like, Oh man, we're going to make it through this and it's going to be all good. It's like, yeah, man, but there's something else on the horizon. Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's, what's interesting is like, 
the, the peanuts, the flu, pneumonia, drunk driving accident. Dude, obesity kills 300,000 yeah. people a like, year. But these are like, these are sure. all known adversaries, right? Is it just the fact that it's a new enemy that's in here and there's a little bit of unknown cloud around it? I mean, the outcome is relatively known. You get it, you have a risk of dying. You know, your risk well, is X percent. Let's go to the top uh, end of that that bubble. And it still is a marginally low relative to the other the other ways people are dying on an annual basis or monthly basis. But is if it you get into a new? car, if you get into a car and drive, if you look at it from a purely statistical model, which I hate reducing human life to statistics because there's a lot lost in that human life is valuable, but you have a greater risk of dying by getting into your car and commuting to work than you do of dying from COVID-19. And I think people should sit on that and think about it for a bit and let those type of things at least have some play when it comes to them making decisions about how they're going to behave. Yeah, and totally. It's not a one-to-one in an exact identical scenario, but it's an exercise, right? It's an exercise yeah. to slow down your thinking, you know, flatten the curve. How about flatten the curve of your emotional response or like your fear curve, whatever. Like these are these are techniques that can be valuable and just changing the way you're thinking about this stuff and maybe give you a little bit of freedom, a little bit of sanity um, on that front, man. I'm, I'm with you. And also... And also don't forget flattening the curve is not the same as reducing the area under the curve. Just, you know, the, the exact same, you know, flattening the curve is designed to not overwhelm the healthcare system. So there's, you know, three X, the number of people that are seeking emergency services, then the capacity of the emergency system to be able to provide it. The area under the curve, is it going to be exactly the same? If you were going to get infected by this, you were going to get infected by it. It's people forget that too. And that's another thing but I think that we're seeing, you know, a little bit of the, the reins have been let off. And people are like, whoa, you know, but in, and I say this based off of me, I'd rather go out with the woo than locked away in my, in my room for 10 years. You know, life is full of risk, period. If you're alive, you're facing risk every single day. Sure. So maybe take some time to learn how to manage, you know, or first off, assess and then manage that risk. Because if you're looking for a zero risk life, I, I mean, I don't even know what that looks like or if it's possible. No, I don't think it is. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with you in the idea that, hey, flatten the curve. And I, I even discussed this with my wife yesterday. I'm like, would you ever or did you ever expect, like like when this whole thing came out, did you ever think in your head there's there's some way for me to avoid this forever? Like I will never get this. And she's like, no. And I'm like, I figured we would all get it at some point. Um, we were just trying to flatten the curve to not understand that. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, but what happens if all of a sudden three, six months from now, you're going to get tested and figure out that, Oh, I have antibodies. I must've had this at some point and didn't notice. Um, like then is that a good thing? Probably I'd be stoked. Then we'd be like, okay, great. We can send our kids to camp. We can do all this stuff. We can go back out. Cause, uh, um, yeah, you're a fucking the, superhero. You can go out and stop crime. Well, the one thing that scares me and, and dude, you know this, if you've gone to a supermarket lately, I went yesterday, uh, as you're walking around the aisles, people all of a sudden as you start coming up to them like freak out and like back up and like the fear that people have of just like the normal indi- of like a normal individual just walking by with a shopping cart like that's the shit that scares me like that's the stuff where i think and i'm like yo man like when uh, this thing has effectively made people fearful of other healthy people and distrusting yeah. of who they are and now people are wearing a mask so you can't see what their fucking face looks like and like, you know, you can see the look in their eyes and their body language and you're like, man, this is so weird. Like, uh, like how long is it going to take for people to actually start physically trusting each other just in like the social contract? Like, hey, I'm in the, um, I'm in the uh, you know, supermarket walking down the aisle and I don't have to fucking jump up against the wall like you're in, you know, grandma's boy. And you're like, ah, oh, they see me, <laughs> you know, that type of stuff. 
So that's, that, I don't that's know, I don't know man. I, I, yeah, I see it too. I think it's going to, it's going to require, I think the narrative to change and a lot of national outlets to kind of unwind. Um, I mean, it, bottom line is people are walking around afraid, you know, and I think fear of the unknown is probably by far the worst. And reality is, it, from my opinion, at least, we really don't know what's going on. I think the math supports, and the more time we have underneath our belt, the math supports that, you know, maybe it was an overreaction at the beginning, but at the same time, I think the decisions were made with the best of intent. But it's, I mean, it's going to take time. People, <laughs> yeah, you literally will, you know, and it's again, if people are afraid of seeing another healthy person, to me, that is indicative of that they're accepting information at face value and the things that they see and hear at face value. Because if you go and do some research on the transmission and what it, you know, the likely course of transmission, it's not from just passing by somebody in a grocery store aisle. You know, if you were to grab them and start sucking on their face, perhaps that would be a different story. But that's not what we're talking about here. So move. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think most people have just accepted the information that has been told to them. Problem being that that information seems to be changing. You know, look at wearing masks as an example, right? The Surgeon General just came out again like two days ago and was like, uh, these masks are actually increasing the risk, you know, but a month ago it was like, God damn it, you better wear a mask. I was just in California. They will not let you in a building without a mask on. Yeah, it's like so, that here in Austin. Like I can't go in and get a coffee or I went to get PT on my shoulder yesterday. And uh, to, they have a big sign, you know, no entering the building without the mask on. And then, you know, so it's... And so, it's, what, uh, and so what are they basing that decision on? And that, that's a curious one fear. to me. Like, yeah, but it's, it's like, okay, so what if you were to walk in there with a, the written transcript of the, you know, the Surgeon General saying, hey, these masks are actually increasing the risk and show it to the business owner. Would they change their mind? Would it change? The, you know what I mean? Like, who are the people who are making these decisions listening to? Because I thought the Surgeon General was at the apex of at least, you know, the individual that's going to stand there and give you the opinion from the medical community in the United States. It's, Dude, it's very bizarre. What they're trying to do is they're trying to meet the, uh, the basic requirements of the, you know, the fucking average intelligence of the local government that are making these decisions that all of a sudden, Hey, like, I just want to run my business. If I have to put this sign up and people have to wear masks to at least give you this illusion, then you know what? People are going to do it. And, uh, I think they would rather do that. And when I went to go, I go to this spot called summer moon to get a coffee, uh, when I go get PT and, um, like it's pretty good place, dude. I, I love their beans, but, uh, like as you roll in, I was like, "Hey, um, I always ask people like, how's it going? Everything cool? Just trying to be friendly with them, and they're like, we're just stoked to be open and working." Yeah, I asked the same question here too. I, everybody I talk to, I'm just like, "Hey, man, how are things going? You guys holding up okay?" Yeah, and uh, just like to, just to try to have like a conversation, and people like, "Oh, yeah," and like this this guy's like, "I'm just stoked we're open," and I'm like, uh, "You know, like whatever it takes to to keep running the business and stay open." And you know, I mean, I think you could take a lot of shit from people. But all of a sudden, when you take away somebody's ability to make money and take care of their family and, you know, be able to put food on the table, all of a sudden, that's where you get into problems. And I think that's why California is having such a hell of a time. Yeah, if you push people into that corner where they feel like they don't have any options, you better you better stand by for some bizarre and atypical behavior. Like, I don't know if you saw, like, the New Jersey uh, governor, like, when they, they had some protesters and some people were demonstrating, and they went through and, like, cleared the square and brought it out, and they asked him, and he's like, well, you know, I wasn't thinking about the First Amendment. I wasn't thinking about the Constitution. You know, we're in a pandemic, and there really is no time, uh, you know, there's no... <laughs> I guess, provision within our constitution that says in times of pandemic, you get to suspend your, you know, basic rights. 
but I think what's interesting is that people are starting to realize exactly how many rights we have lost and didn't even notice. I mean, you got to ask for permission. You got to pay a fee to drive on the road. I mean, we pay taxes on the money we get taxed on. I mean, you go through this and you have to ask permission to, to, to use your rights in so many different ways. And I think what's interesting, at least what I'm seeing, is people are starting to come to the realization that we've abandoned too many of our rights for this idea of safety and freedom. And um, I've, I wonder at which point it'll be like the tipping point where, hey, they've taken this one. Now let's see how people react. Or maybe people just keep giving them away. Yeah, you know, I... I'm not a constitutional scholar by any stretch, but I believe that the people that sat down and wrote that document were relatively intelligent individuals. And, you know, there's probably a reason that it doesn't say in times of pandemic, these rights can be um, suppressed, you know, it because they're not intended to be. I think that, you know, a lot of the things that people are being asked to do or told to do. If you look at it in terms of constitutional rights, you're hundred percent correct. I think they're being violated. Um, and I don't know if you're, if you've seen this or you're following this, but, and this, cause I just got tagged in this by like 50 times probably yesterday. There's a police officer in Seattle who is. Yeah. No, I saw that. yeah hmm. And you know, so I sent that to a couple of my other, uh, so what's, know, the story, what's the story? Who in a nutshell, John, correct me if you think this deviates from a, from the correct description. So he is a port authority police officer in Seattle. He recorded a video in his, what looked like to be his squad car. In and uniform. basically in uniform, um, you can see his badge. You can clearly see that he is on duty. And it, I think it was a, somewhere between eight to 10 minutes. And it was an Instagram. Uh, it wasn't an Instagram live. It was like the little TV icon, whatever that is. And he basically was talking to other officers and talking about, you know, they are enforcing tyrannical laws that are in violation of the constitution. Like John was already mentioning, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of religion. And he was saying, you know, that that's basically not how the policing occupation is supposed to work. You know, that they're provided their authorities from the people, from the governed, right? That's where the, the government gets their power from. And an executive order does not, uh, surpass in authoritative power the constitution you know there's basically what was the word that he used john for the constitution being like the highest level of authority um i don't know i don't know what i mean he basically the speech was uh as a as a law enforcement officer you swear an oath to defend the constitution not to enforce tyrannical law and there's a moral obligation to not force into tyrannical law and his whole deal is like, I mean, the fact that uh, police are pulling people over and asking to see a uh, pass to whether essential or not they're papers. essential. Yeah. yeah, like so now we're in like, you know, Nazi Germany and, you know, the, the fucking KGB is pulling you over to check your papers. That doesn't exist. Uh, you know, the idea that um, they're going in and, you know, shutting a salon down and arresting people and, you know, or I, I saw a video of a lady, I think it was in Montana, her kids were playing outside and they came by and arrested her because her kids were outside. And like, uh, you know, some neighbor taking the video of this thing and it's like, they're not like, like there's yeah. nowhere in the job description and the problem. And I think what we're running into is that, you know, the, the police are really our, our outward facing version of the government. So like when people now become distrusting of the government, now all of a sudden these agents of the government, which would be, you know, police like law enforcement. Now all of a sudden people are distrusting and the guy makes an interesting point that like, and I'm paraphrasing, like there's a social contract that the police have 
to be governed, to carry a badge and do all this that is granted by the people that we've, uh, we've granted them these rights to govern us. And the minute that they're no longer governing us and suppressing our freedoms and you know being a violation of the constitutional rights, then are they really still agents that we've granted to? Now they become thugs with guns, and now we have to defend ourselves. And his comment was like, if that if that happens and we lose this this uh, contract with the with the public, things are going to get fucking really bad. And as a, as a citizen of this country and a law enforcement officer, you're sworn to uphold the constitution. So, like, make a good decisions, and if you have leadership that is uh, is forcing you or wanting you to violate people's, uh, you know, constitutional rights, you shouldn't do it. And he's a he, he was also a, a veteran. I, I don't know what um, what his MOS was or what he served with, but he made you know he was an army guy, and uh, and so Luke, his message was to other officers, and apparently um, the day after he posted it in the morning. He got an email from his chain of command saying, hey, that's a great message. You know, it's a positive message. And then later in the day, as it started to escalate in the the national and social narrative, they're like, okay, it's gone too far. You need to take it down. And the issue came when he refused to take it down. So in his refusal to take it down, he is now on administrative leave pending termination for insubordination. And the crazy part is his union sided with the police department against him. Yeah. Well, the... Reading, mean, reading up on it now, the message came down from the governor to remove it, and now he's facing that backhand from the governor of Washington. Yeah, he says in his own words, you know, basically he he heard word from the chief of police. He he actually he expressed he's put up a couple of videos the last few days, and he said, you know, I really respect the chief of police, but he basically told me you cannot, you know, publicly oppose the governor and serve as a law enforcement officer in the state of Washington. So it's not necessarily the message. It's the fact that he's not listening to the, like he's a public well, But you have right. to remember, I mean, th- we don't live in a, um, we don't live in a police state. We don't live in a, some, you know, uh, fucking, you know, uh, like, I guess, you know, you know, like Royal situation where like, you know, you can't uh, govern or criticize the King or, you know, you, it's the KGB and it's a secret police and you, you know, you can't, criticize him i mean even though he's a police officer he's still a citizen taxpayer and still has the right to his opinion and as a law enforcement officer he, well yeah you know, but he's but he's not though he's a police officer so he did and that's where they're time. and that's where they're gonna if I, if I had to guess that's where they'll try to hang it they will try to find a policy that he was in deviation of where that whether it's a social media policy or what you can't take x video because you're in your equipment but the problem the bottom line is obviously that you know this process is ongoing for him um and you know people were hitting me up like andy you gotta have this guy on your podcast and i mean i'd love to but i think the situation needs to net itself out first it would not be positive to have somebody on who's in the middle of this Uh, but it's going to be it's going to be sloppy either way it goes right i mean it somebody's getting sued somewhere at at the end of this for sure so on um uh, just to kind of take a detour Man. a little bit um, on the Cleared Hot podcast, uh, what's you know, and I've been a alum of it. So, mm-hmm. uh, what's the going forward like? What's the theme? I mean, you know, when you go out, and I know you've had a really interesting eclectic group of guests. Is there really like a centralized theme or something when you come on? It's just you know more introducing people to amazing people, or is it more like, hey, you know what? Like, you know, our podcast allegedly is based around strength, conditioning, and fitness. Uh, the problem is, you know, we get into that, uh, you know, we started there, but yet it's kind of deviated into this lifestyle information, uh, performance training, whether it be, you know, physical, mental, emotional leadership, whatever. I mean, we've kind of evolved over the years. 
Uh, what's kind of the, you know, the vision for Cleared Hot and more importantly, like where do you see the evolution of it going? It's a good question. And it's actually one I've been, you know, with some more time on my hands to think about a world that seems to be dominated by a digital medium, which of course podcasts fall directly into that, whether it's audio only or video and audio. Um, I was trying to, I was like, why did I even start doing this in the first place? was the first question that I asked myself. And the answer that I came to is that I'm actually fascinated by other people and other people's experiences. And I like talking to people who have, you know, dedicated themselves to something, you know, for example, you, when we sat down, you know, and talking about what the hell it actually takes to play or pursue something at the absolute highest levels and the things that pros that come with that and the cons that come with that. And there's obviously on-air conversations we can have about that. And then off-air conversations, you know, the color commentary that goes in between, but I'm just more interested in other people than I am in myself or anything that I have done. So I just kind of seek out people that I think have an interesting take on something or have dedicated their life down in a path that I find to be fascinating or have a work at, you know, something about them is of interest to me. And I want to talk about that. Um, so the architecture going forward, I actually just signed uh, a lease on a building here on a building in an office space in Kalispell. I'm going to give myself 45 days to build it out into an actual studio because I'm at a point and it's, you know, it's continued to grow since I started doing it. I'm at a point where I need to professionalize myself and create more of an architecture. And I think a lot of that will be based around consistency. I mean, I have people over to my house or I'll record podcasts on the road and I'll probably still continue to do both, but I want to professionalize it. And a lot of that has to do with just holding myself accountable. So I'm going to start releasing an episode on Friday that is based purely on Q and a it's, I mean, I I was talking, uh, I was in LA talking with Brian Callen about it. And I'm just going to call it full auto Friday where it'll be six to eight topics. I'm going to limit myself to no more than five minutes and just kind of rattle through my thoughts because I cannot keep up with the volume of Q and a that I get. And as this has grown, my access to getting uh, interesting people that I consider interesting, interested in being on the podcast has also grown. So it's kind of, it'll allow me to release more consistently uh, on both mediums, but I also find that the podcast for me is hugely cathartic and it challenges me to constantly, or it forces me to constantly challenge my beliefs, especially the Q and a people will say, well, Hey, why do you believe this? And I have to sit down. I'm like, well, God damn it. Why do I believe that? Or what is it that formed my opinion on this? So it's, it's a constant challenging of my belief system via the Q and a, and I'll sit down and talk with people that I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, a good current example of that would be uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. At a conceptual level, he and I disagreed about some of the things that he has devoted his uh, academic life and research to. And some of the things we really agree on, you know, sleep deprivation being one of them. And, you know, basically addiction to electronic devices. So I'm totally willing to sit down with somebody and at the end of it, respectfully disagree. Um, but I found actually at all the stuff that I do, the podcast is one of the more enjoyable things. So for me, the framework forward is to step on the gas pedal a little bit and to see how far I could take it. It would be, I think my dream job at this point would be going forward is the ability just to constantly sit down with people and, you know, discuss their experiences and what makes them tick. You know, Andy, you got a guest that that you disagreed with. How about a guest or experience that's challenged your position on something that's actually shifted your perspective or the trajectory that you're on in terms of that 
thought system or value system? A specific guest that has challenged me in my value system. You know, Dan Crenshaw is an interesting guy. He has, uh, you know, very firm beliefs um, about governance. And I would say more than anything, maybe talking with him, not necessarily in just the episode, but in the time before and after we hit the record button, it probably narrowed uh, my focus on certain aspects of government that I wasn't paying attention to probably specifically size of government and just the actual mechanism and function of government and how it works. So that was a good one because it got me to pay attention in areas I think that I wasn't necessarily uh, paying attention in before. I'm trying to think of anybody else that's wildly changed my belief system. No, Dan Sharp. I, I don't think so. I, I appreciate Dan's commentary on stuff. He looks at things very matter of fact and you know you can tell you know not only you know where he came from and what he's prepped and especially in that kind of uh, as you know as an officer in his uh, in NSW you know, looks at things very, very rationally and looks at the information. And I, uh, I actually enjoy his commentary and the way he, he phrases things. The other thing, which is uh, why I view him as a valuable person to listen to, is the utterate hatred that the people across the aisle have for him. I mean, here's this guy who's a first-year, you know, congressman from Houston, Texas area. I think he's from Katy in that area. Um, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, um, I forgot his district. But, like, the outward hatred that uh, different groups and people have for him. I mean, he's got to be one of the most polarizing, you know, freshman congressmen. Uh, whereas, you know, you look on the other side with um, AOC and, and you know, in a similar deal, and that's as polarizing. And so it's pretty interesting that, like, if you listen to what he says, it's this kind of appeal to, like, hey, this is how it was set up. This is how it's working. And the way that you're being told it works isn't how it works. And I think he, he did a really good job for that on, uh, on Rogan's show and also on your show. But even some of his Instagram lives and what he's gone through in terms of being like, hey, this is how government works. This is how this whole thing, and more importantly, uh, I'm pulling the curtain back to give you guys some better, um, just a, a better view of this information. And I think like, you know, I'm sure when you had him on the podcast socially, you'd be like, I'd hang out with this dude. He's switched on cat, uh, or, you know. Yeah, for sure. And he provides, you know, a different angle that you can look at the same issue from. And that to me is, you know, may, that might not directly change my opinion, but at least gives me another angle to view a problem from. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that that's what this platform offers up is just broadening that perspective, right? And maybe an appreciation from a different angle. Um, and, and I guess as that's grown, Andy, you know, do you, I'm going to bring it in the way back machine because a lot of our listeners are sure. coaches, CrossFit coaches mm -hmm. and gym owners and shit like that. Like, um, you know, you've probably gone through various iterations where you kind where there's an opportunity to grow and let shit go. Like, do you, ha if you were a gym owner right now, would you be evaluating whether or not your, what you're going to your tomorrow, if you're a gym owner in tomorrow, the new normal, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I think that this, and I don't want to bring it back into the COVID, but I do think that your perspective on this might be valuable for some of our listeners. I mean, I think you should always be thinking about the future, you know, and variables, but you got to, you know, contingency planning is what we spent the vast majority of our planning cycle thinking about, you know, the what ifs. But at the same time, you can't spend all of your time thinking about the what ifs because the, the you know, the what is most likely you know, we would put up the most likely course of action, the most deadly course of action, and then all of the what ifs that we would, that we would plan on. If I was a gym owner right now, I mean, hopefully I would have put at least a little bit of thought into something like this happening maybe before. That would be the one, the guy who's probably, you know, a little bit out of the starting blocks ahead of somebody. 
But I actually think the new normal, everybody keeps talking about what our new normal is going to look like. I think 12 months from now, it's going to look exactly like it did 24 months ago. I really don't think it's going to change too much of how people interact in the long term, right? I think that we got to probably expand the optic before we get back to normal in air quotes. But I think, unfortunately, people have very short memories. And the economy, I think, is going to take longer to get back to the normal than people's behavior is going to. Do you think that, um, I guess, on that point, when did, when did you pull the ripcord on, like, because you, you got your start at, as a in the HQ staff, right? CrossFit HQ staff, or were you gym, in the gym space before that? Uh, HQ staff first, and then I had a gym for, I don't even remember what years it was. I think it was sure. like 08 to 10, something like that. And then where, what was the point where you'd res, like realize that this whole active shoulders and knees out thing just wasn't for you? And like, what considerations did you make in terms of like, I guess, abandoning that space as your, your primary hustle? Um. I, you know, the, you know, active shoulders and knees out and the coaching and all that stuff. I, I enjoy coaching. I think teaching is yeah, good. I enjoy teaching, you know, for one, it's a measurement of how well you understand the material, your ability to go out and actually answer questions and get up in front of people and teach. I stopped working for CrossFit because I had a moral disagreement with the person that I was working for, not a disagreement <laughs> as to whether or not, you know, the, the, the program itself was valid. I mean, CrossFit is such a, a broad term and it's so polarizing and people either love it or hate it. And the reality is, you know, you know, in high intensity training, yeah, it works, you know, but you still, you can't be, don't expect to do 60 minutes in a, in a, in a gym per day and be some world-class athlete in some other domain, right? It's, it's general fitness. It should make you better for life. And John be the first person to be able to tell you that if you want to be really good at an activity, you need to tailor your training towards that activity, right? So it's people, I think, at a baseline level have a gross misunderstanding of it. But the ripcord for me was, again, it was from a philosophical and moral disagreement with the individual that I was working for and directly with, as opposed to the organization itself. Yeah, but I mean, you, like, as you go around and you you, have, you spoke in dozens, hundreds of times, like, you, you're not talking on fitness, you're talking on larger... Um, larger scale concepts, you know, leadership in your experience. So you're undoubtedly, you're still teaching, right? Like you're, yeah. you're presenting information distilled down and, you know, it, your, your talks on our YouTube are the most watched talks. So I don't doubt that you, you pulled the ripcord on teaching and, and really that continue that journey. But um, I, yeah, I guess I don't know where this is really necessarily leading Andy. And, and I guess maybe that's where, I'm, I want our coaches and I want folks in this industry to realize like it doesn't have to stop with coaching. There, there's a growth opportunity to scale beyond uh, walking into a gym, counting reps, aligning movements. And like, while that all is very valid and, and meaningful and is needed in certain spaces, like um, there's got to be a desire to grow beyond that. I think not necessarily abandon it, but grow beyond it. Right now. Yeah, well, in, in the ecosystem you're talking about, you need to teach people, how to do that coaching role and then you need to level up and become you know there's a difference between being an owner and a coach um and a lot of people uh, and i saw this anecdotally you know you go in and the thing holding them back in their growth of their business is themselves because they want to be the person that does the website they want to be the person that cleans the floor they want to be the person that goes in and coaches every one of their classes and in reality you know a good leader is constantly training their replacement and eventually you could you know 
task shed all of those things and focus on the bigger picture and continue to grow. Maybe you add a second uh, location, right? And then you have to repeat that process again. It just depends on where it depends on where you want to take it. So, I mean, it's, it, that's more a matter of people's individual goals. Some people are probably better off being a coach than a business owner. I mean, that's the reality. There's a spectrum of what people are capable of. And, you know, there's certainly things that I hit a glass ceiling on um, and that others can blast right through. And, that, and that's true of the coaching ownership relationship as well. I mean, you, you've got a chance to see, you know, definitely like uh, being HQ staff, owning a gym and then, you know, getting out of that and then kind of going into, you know, not only just like the, the forward facing seminar business, but more within the, you know, the cross, or I guess the, the structure for, for uh, CrossFit HQ. Um, but yeah. uh, like, I don't think that you were ever satisfied, like ever saw yourself, Hey, I'm just a gym owner. I'm just a guy that gets out on the road and, you know, is the flow master. I think you always, uh, you know, were reaching for more and expected to do more and just saw these as jobs on a, on the way to a bigger job. I mean, look at Chuck Carswell. I mean, what has he taught like a thousand plus of those deals and gets up every weekend and teaches that information. And like, that's what gets him going is providing that information and doing it. Whereas I'm sure like you, like me, we probably would have put a gun in our mouth at that point. Uh, having to get up and regurgitate the same information and deliver it in the same way over and over again becomes, you know, somewhat difficult. But like, you know, and then there's other people that are, you know, I love owning my gym. I love doing all this. And like, they don't have a desire like that. And I'm sure you saw this in the military. Not everybody has the desire to rise up the ranks. Some people find a job and like, hey, I can handle this job. I like the money. I'm just going to stay here until they kick me out. So I, I think it's um, at least what we've observed over the years is there's people that are like, you know, my end state is I want to be a coach. I want to have athletes come through. I want to do this. And then I think there's people that are looking for much more like, hey, I'm going to do this now, but I'm, I'm, it's not going to stop me from trying to go to the next level and keep continue to, uh, to evolve. Yeah, and I think it's very valuable for both somebody who is managing people and as individuals to identify that for yourself. Because like you said, like I, I could not have done um, the, the number, just the pure volume that Chuck has done oh, over same. the years, which is ridiculously yeah. impressive. I mean, it's, it's incredibly impressive. And I never looked at any of the roles that I held inside of CrossFit as an end state. They just kind of were a station along the way. But if you can, you know, if you identify somebody that's going to be tapped out at a great head coach and they actually want to do that, that's an incredibly valuable sure. employee. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you find somebody who's like, Oh, I want to be an owner, but they're not, probably capable of doing that without some serious mentorship and growth along the way. That's also valuable. So it's, you know, it's valuable for the individual and the business owner. So what's the best thing about living in Montana? Best thing about living in Montana. Man. I mean, seeing as we pulled both pulled the ripcord out of Southern California about That's, the same time I came to Texas, you went to Montana. I'm just wondering what do you think the best thing about Montana is? Yeah, man, it's hard to distill down into one thing. I mean, the, it's palpably different, the pace of life. Um, I mean, there's less cars, there's less people. There's, you know, the terminal here at the airport has three, you know, three gates. Uh, the access to quiet is unbelievable. You know, just the ability to detach if you want to and drive in any direction. I mean, I can walk out of my house and just get completely lost in the back country of Montana um, if I wanted to cost of living is lower. The quality of living is higher. Uh, the four seasons, you know, actually getting to see that as opposed to the one season living in San Diego, which is the sunny season slash it rains, you know, once every two months. Uh, the politics I'd say were probably a little bit more in line uh, with my beliefs. I mean, I very much like you, I'd, I'd land in the center on damn near 
everything, if not everything. And I get very uncomfortable the more people start floating towards the extremes. Um, you know, Montana leans a little bit more to the right. When it comes to gun laws, that's more a little bit in my favor because I love guns. I've had guns, you know, I've used them professionally. So the access to them is better. Um, I mean, fuck all of the, I mean, the winter sports, there's summer activities, there's something to do in every season. There's hunting. I mean, it's, it, there's no way I could put a pin in just one thing. It's just and kind you, of the whole experience. Have you spun up like a local network of bros or friends or anything like that? Or is it mostly people coming in and you're in and out just with this schedule? Um, I have become really good friends with a lot of, well, not a lot of, because there's a lot, a large for the Valley law enforcement, uh, presence, but I would say my closest, uh, network of friends are probably in the LEO world who I met through doing, um, jujitsu and then snowboarding and then hunting. I mean, there's a, a combination of people that do all three of those things. So they're, they're probably my closest network, but you know, social distancing is one of my favorite activities. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of humanity in general. <laughs> So it's, it's perfect for me to be here. My social circle, I think, has always been small. I would describe it as it's probably an inch wide, but a mile deep, as opposed to the opposite. I just don't communicate well, probably in general. Um, but yeah, the, the bro network for sure is is certainly tied more in that. I think the first responder realm, I've just always had a lot of um, respect and a lot of things in common for people who are out there, you know, providing services for others or giving of themselves for others. What about like, um, so I, I get, I get some stories from John, uh, just about, you know, cause you kind of have to step outside as kids get older and network of friends and birthday parties mm -hmm. and friends, parents and stuff. Um, oh, you don't have to do any of that. None. So there's none of that. You don't have to do any of that. That's all optional. Oh shit. Well, that's good to well, know. Uh, but also Andy's <laughs> kids are a little bit older. I mean, um, how old's your daughter now? Yeah. She is 11 going on 12 next month. I got 16, 14, and yes, 11. Your kid's a little older. Luke's in, uh, you know, right. yeah, Luke's I'd... in the middle of the baby fight with a nine-month-old. Months. So, and I'm, uh, you know, yeah. my kids are eight and my little boy's four. So it's um, it's a little bit different with like, you know, these social interactions and this. And I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm like, I don't want to go to another birthday party, but unfortunately we have to. And then, yeah, then they hit a teenager and then, you know, they have their own social circle and that actually has to them more value than any interaction that you're going to have with them. It's, it's interesting sure. to see you have, you know, by, by the age, my kids are, I would say even my daughter, to be honest with you, I don't know how much more of an impact I can have on her life, you know, and I'm not, that's not by, that's not to say that I can detach from her life or nor would I ever do that. But at this point she knows my opinion on every single topic <laughs> and she now spends it was, all of my kids do. They know my opinion they on how they I can feel and listen to your podcast. Uh, my, they could if they my daughters to, do that. But I mean, they've, they've, they've been around me so much that it's not a matter of them not knowing how I feel. And now, now that they're in school, they're actually spending more time with people other than me. So my ability to influence is decreasing as they age. So I hope I've done a good job up to this point for them, because like I said, it's, you know, they already know what I think now, whether or not they come to me with questions or they want to know how I think on other things, you know, that's up to them at this point, even my daughter, well, yeah. it's, you know, they're their own little people. And I think, you know, you, I think, and I'm basing this off of my experience and interaction with my parents, not my interaction with my nine month old, but as life goes on, there are seeds that are planted that will yeah. ultimately like resurface and drive influence. Like I can think of, you know, basically 16 to 27. There was like 
my parents didn't know anything. They just didn't get it. But then as I've aged, you know, certain yeah. things are resurfacing. I'm like, oh, okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that. That little thing that was you know, that little seedling is now kind of sprouting and influenced my behavior now. So Yeah, I agree. It's it's crazy to you know, to to watch the lack of relevance you have in your kid's life as they approach teenage years and beyond. It's, it's utterly and just catastrophically painful. Yeah. Yeah. Man, what else we got? John, you got anything else for Andy? No, I, um, I mean, not really. I, yeah, no, I do. I, I'm, I'm always interested in like, you know, Andy's take on what's happening and, you know, uh, fuck dude, I get to live vicariously through your hunting pictures. I dream one day of like, you know, being able to go and take an elk of that size and do some of the things. It just, uh, I got to kind of pick my spots, especially with having a bunch of young kids, but I, man, I really look forward to like being able to go do some bigger hunting. Like I, um, I was supposed to go on one, uh, was supposed to go on, what is it? Um, to Arizona on that sheep hunt with Baker and those guys probably in like, was supposed to be in August, September, but who knows how that whole thing's going to go down. So, but, um, you you might be okay on you might be okay on that. I you know I do my opening season is in late August in Canada, and I think that sucker might get canceled though. I don't know how they're going to treat the border, or right. what's going to be considered essential or permissive at that point. Um, but dude, when uh, my goal is to have the podcast studio set up in about forty five days, I want to do it by probably the end of June at the latest. But July or August, man, come up and we'll, uh, we'll do an episode in the yeah, new no, studio and you can come check it out. Uh, for I'd love to. I was, um, I was looking at, uh, like we had all of these points, uh, from like traveling and the whole deal. And we were supposed to go see Kate's mom and my mom and do a whole bunch of stuff. And, uh, all of a sudden all they got canceled. So we had all these points. So we've been like looking around, like what to do with them. And, um, yeah, like, uh, the, yeah. the international travel is not looking great. So I told Kate, I was like, Hey, like look for like some, like, dude ranch or something where like the kids we can go out and like maybe in Colorado or Montana or Wyoming, wherever. So we've been looking up there and I, she found one that was in like Northern Colorado. I'm like, mm, that's not that far a drive from uh, Montana. And I'm, <laughs> like, I was like, man, it'd be cool to no, I, I do. Yeah. I, I think I told you I drove to Wyoming in a day and back to buy that truck. So I know exactly what the drive is. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, man, like the, the hunting stuff is, is insane. I mean, they, it's kind of like you got to put yourself in different positions. I mean, but uh, has the hunting really like, I mean, uh, the, I, I guess you could say like the stock and the, uh, the training and all that, that's kind of building up to allow you to go take and do some of those things. I mean, is that giving you new focus or kind of a new direction or kind of the new, like, what are you training for kind of model where now all of a sudden you're looking at like, Hey, if I got to go into the, you know, into the wilderness for three days to be able to pull something amazing out, like that's how I'm going to really drive my training. And that's kind of the way that you're kind of prepping everything. Um, I mean, the, tr the hunting is super challenging. I mean, you t bow hunting is hunting is probably hard enough as it is. And then you put a bow and arrow in your hand instead of a, you know, a black powder type mechanism, like your odds just precipitously drop. So it's, it is super challenging. Uh, and there is a, a physical aspect of that, but I come apart as a human being if I, if I'm not physical anyway, so I don't necessarily need, you know, the, it for, because for me, it's basically the last week of August. And then by the end of September, I mean, that's kind of it, you know, you're talking maybe 45 days, 60 days, probably, um, total of even potential opportunity to hunt of that time. I may be hunting 14 days, you know? Um, so there, I, I put a pin in, in that a little bit physical wise, you know, jujitsu is physically taxing as well. It's very different. I've actually had to change my training up quite a bit. I was 
lifting and doing jujitsu when I first started, I was just fucking destroyed. It, the I had to shift and reallocate, and now I'm at a point. I've been doing it enough now that uh, I'm reintroducing, um, you know, touching barbells again. But for about a year, if not a little bit over a year, I couldn't do both. I was just completely physically wiped. But as long as I'm physically active like that, my brain functions at such a better level. My emotional state is better. My physical state is better. So I, I just keep, keep searching for reasons to stay active and train. No, man, the pictures look epic, dude. I, uh, man, like that, uh, that elk you took, I was like, holy shit, dude. I mean, I, I don't know what that quartered out or what that uh, carcass weight was, but man, it had to be six or 700 pounds. Yeah, you got, I think we got about three to 400 pounds of elk oh. off of that. Damn. Nah, it's epic. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Being around those animals, and especially the distance you have to be to even get an ethical shot with a bow. I mean, when they're bugling, it's reverberating your your rib cage. You're like, holy fuck, this is this is getting real. Well, you know, I, I got that Thule elk, and um, which was, was in Central California, and I remember we chased them for three days with bows. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they'd be like two miles this way, and we'd run this way, and we'd get on the top of the ridge, and they were like two miles past us. I couldn't even get within, geez, like uh, you know, four or five hundred yards of these things. And then it was like on the fourth day I got up, and that's when I, I think I shot that one at like 616 with the 300 wind mag, which isn't a hard shot with a 300 wind mag. And I just remember thinking like, yeah. like they were on the next hill, and they're like looking at us, and I you know, fucking set up right at, at, at uh, daybreak and fucking shot it and was able to uh, knock um, a big cow down. But man, it's uh, I, like, I couldn't even, like I couldn't even imagine. We couldn't even get within sniffing distance of these things, let alone like, I mean, the closest I could get was with the 300 wind mag, so... Anytime I see that, I'm like, fuck, man, like to be able to get in within 30, you know, because I mean, most of the shots that you're taking are at farthest, what, 40, 50, 60 yards, if that. Yeah, my Utah Bowl last year came in head first at three yards. And then when I drew, he bolted, they stopped him at maybe like 10 or 13 yards. And the bowl I got in Montana before that was 14 yards. So you're stocking up on these things, huh? Uh, most, well, no, most of the time you're calling them mm-hmm. to you. I don't think, fuck, man, they'd have to be just passed out sleeping to be able to get that close. Yeah. So you're calling them in then. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, let me say, in my experience, I've had more success with calling them in. I've actually, let me see here. I've never been able to have a, sh- yeah, I've never gotten a shot on one that didn't involve a call of some kind. Are you and in I a stand people- or in a blind, Andy? No, no, it's all spot and stock from the ground. You got to be able to move. And from my experience, especially with elk, like, you know, John talking about not being able to catch them. Good luck trying to play catch up with elk. It's like, forget about it. Now you got to almost like set up and wait for them to come to you because dude, those things like I, uh, like it was like at the end of three days, like, what do you think? I'm like, let's get up early with the gun. I believe me. I got no ego about this thing. I want to take <laughs> yeah. something home and uh, I would love to take it with a bow. But at the end of the day, I just want to be able to take something home. So at that point, you know, yeah. Fill, you got to fill the freezer. Yeah. That should be priority number one. And I'll tell you, like, uh, I personally think, like, you got elk, you got buffalo, and then, you know, cow bean is kind of down here. I mean, buffalo is pretty epic. Uh, any uh, opportunity to go hunt a buffalo? There are buffalo hunting opportunities up here, but at this point I still have, you know, I got two elk last year, two bull elk, so I have no room in the freezer for it, and it would just sit there and, you know, when I'm ready to buy another freezer at Costco, <laughs> I'll probably go 
go down that route. I would add Axis deer probably somewhere near the elk buffalo. It's really good if you have yeah, it. Yeah, don't have Axis. Uh, there's a crazy amount of Axis uh, over here in Texas, especially on that Frio. Oh, yeah, yeah that's that, right. Yeah, there's no, there's no season yeah, on those Yeah, they're invasive species, but there's that whole Frio River Valley, uh, like from like Leaky and Campwood and that whole area that fits with that uh, Frio River that I guess some guy had a big exotics farm and just let the fences go down. And so there's like, you know, um, uh, axis, but also those big, um, those big sheep, uh, the big African sheep. I forget what they're called. They begin with an E. Uh, like, uh, I have a buddy who's got a hunt. I'm not a sheep guy. Yeah, I have a buddy who uh, has a hunting lease and he'll text me these pictures and I'll be like, and he's like, yeah, that's the, you know, that's down, you know, within that campwood area. I'm like, damn, dude, that's like something out of Africa. He's like, you know, these crazy ass looking axes. And they also have these interesting looking reindeer too. So it's pretty neat. And they're invasive species. You can hunt them all year round. Yeah. No, they're great. You just got to prepare it properly. If you go anything over medium rare on those things, it's ruined. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure any steak over medium rare is already ruined. Yeah, opinions vary, but, you know, most opinions <laughs> are wrong. Why? Uh, you still eat your meat uh, well done? No. No, I would like to see it as you cut into it, a slight blood trail come out onto the plate. It mixes well with the mashed potatoes. Did uh, you get deep into the Traeger camp, huh? Dude, that thing changed the way that I cooked. And the reality is, is it's hard to mess up. So that's why I enjoy it. And it's, I mean, it's pretty foolproof. So Yeah, no, my brother Eddie loves his. He says it's the, uh, uh, like the laziest man's best invention. He's like, I just put the meat in, set the timer, got it on my phone, loaded up and it comes out amazing. I don't even have to put any work. He's like, he's like, you got to go over there and like tune your egg and do everything. So, yeah, it's pretty simple. I got to get one. I've been just, I'm still on the Weber, John. I sold the egg. I'm over here just fucking suburban gas grilling like a fool, man. Like a bitch. I am. I'm man, just gas grilling bitch. Andy, thanks for taking the time. Power Athlete Nation, thank you for tuning in. If you're not following. Andy Stump 212 on Instagram. If you're not following Tactical Asshole, you're truly <laughs> missing out on quality, possibly it's the most funny. valuable content on Instagram. No joke. And if you're not tuning in to Clear to Hot, shame on you. Andy, I like the um, I like the Q&A system that you got set up. Maybe we could do something similar. Um, it we, helps. We, I just can't keep up with the volume. And especially, like I said, as the guests are more willing to come on and I can record those, like there's, I get bombarded and it's, it's kind of, it's just another content offering for people that want it anyway, so they can take it or leave it. Yeah, totally. We've been doing a little Q and a in the morning and uh, the trick on our end is keeping John under 45 minutes per question. I have the <sighs> same problem, which is why I'm literally going to do a five minute timer on my phone. And if I'm middle of a stream of thought, then Move it on. gets cut off. <laughs> you know, uh, the one thing I've always, I, I respect that, but I also like the long form when you can like really get into that kind of Jordan Peterson-esque deal where you really get in and break all the pieces apart and like really examine it. But to really be able to do that, you have to have kind of meditated on this. And that's actually what I appreciate about Jordan Peterson is just how far th through things he's thought. And then when he something new is presented to him, he's the first one to be like, I really haven't put enough thought and effort into, into this. So it's going to be short. And I, I just always really appreciated people that have actually – thought things through from multiple sides, presented it, breaking the pieces back, put it back together and then presented it in a, you know, in a unique and interesting way. And, um, well, John, uh, you got to get your, get yourself a guy who can do both. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, short and not long winded. Nah, I don't know. It's going to be tough. All right. Well, thanks Andy. Yeah, man. Bye. Safe travels, man. Yeah, sure, safe. Thank you. Make sure Now it's time for you to empower your performance. 
You can check out Andy's podcast at clearedhotpodcast.com or learn more about Andy Stumpf uh, at andystumpf.com or just troll him on the old Instagram at andystumpf212. Until next time, bye! Little white pill for them little white lines I'm